Please be seated. Amen. And it turns out um, we, we, we missed one other uh, critical uh, celebration, namely that for as huge of an impact as Sheila has had on us and our church, Sheila would want to make sure that she recognized that her mother, Lori Lutz, has also been just as big of an impact on Sheila's life and through Sheila on all of ours. Can we give it up for Lori as well? We're talking today about Hebrews chapter 12 and the opening idea, which is where we ended the message last week. The opening idea is to run with perseverance or with endurance the race that is marked out for you. And what a gift it is to have not only the people we've celebrated today, but so many people in our congregation, and I pray so many people in your lives, that are examples of what it means to run with perseverance, this race called life that God has us running. We're going to try to go this morning through the entirety of Hebrews chapter 12, which means we don't have any time for any heartwarming stories or humorous anecdotes up front. We just need to get straight into the text. So I'd invite you to open Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to start by reading the first three verses together. We're going to kind of break it up into three parts, verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 13-ish, and then verses 14 through 17 at the end. Um, I realized in the first service, and I just realized again, I didn't fix it, um, I copied and pasted the wrong translation. And you know how you, you, get, you get familiar with a passage in one translation, and then you read it in another, and you're like, that doesn't make any sense. So I don't know how I did this, but I, I pasted the wrong translation. So it's going to sound weird to me. It might look different than your text if you're reading the NIV, which we usually read. But that's okay. We can make it. It's good to have different translations of the Bible. That's a gift. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Here's the idea that I want to talk about right now. I want to talk about the idea that your life is the race God has marked out for you. And what we're going to find together as we read through chapter 12 is that sometimes we get super concerned with the idea of where on this race course of life am I supposed to go? Maybe like me, you've run a race before. And if the text says this race has been marked out for us, you might think, wait a minute. When I run a race, they have neon flags and they have bright yellow paint on the road and they put barricades up to make sure you always stay on the race course. Well, I've had times in life when I've thought, you know what I would like, God? 
I would like a big neon arrow in the sky pointing me where to go, and it's never happened. I've never had that, though I've prayed. God, show Which means that if we're supposed to run with perseverance, the race marked out to us, maybe the concern is not the details of the race course, what direction you go, but rather the greater concern is the readiness and the perseverance of the racer. And here's the example we get. We're, we're told if we want to be run with perseverance kind of people, we should consider Jesus. He is the example of somebody who stayed faithful, who persevered to the end. And he not only persevered in the joyful times and the sweet friendships and the beautiful ministry he had, he persevered even in the most horrendous hardship, even in the cross. And the incredible thing the author of Hebrews said is the reason Jesus endured was for the joy set before him. So if we're going to try to run with perseverance, and if this race we're running is in fact all of our lives, and if Jesus is the example, what that says to me is running with perseverance means joy is always the outcome of endurance. We don't, we don't mean joy like I feel happy. The emotions of happiness are nice, but that's not at all what we mean by joy. Joy is, in fact, a deeper identity and state of being. When our life is rooted in the life of Christ, we can have joy whether we're happy or sad. We can have joy whether things are going well or things are going poorly. We can have joy regardless of our circumstances because joy is greater than what we might be thinking or feeling or experiencing at the time. But the big question is this. Okay, here's the exhortation. Run with perseverance. Why? The text says because we can receive the joy that Christ has. It says we can have a peace-filled fruit of righteousness. And if that's something we want, we do it by running with perseverance. Well, okay, interesting. How do I become a run with perseverance kind of person? I want to spend most of our time together talking about this question of if the challenge is to run our life race with perseverance, how do I become that kind of person? And the answer, it turns out, that the author who wrote this letter long ago says, the answer is what the main chunk of chapter 12 talks about, verses 4 through 13. So go ahead and look at those now as I read this middle chunk of verses. In your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons or daughters. Besides this, we, have all, we all have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time 
as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Here's the big idea. If, if we're going to run with perseverance the race of all of life, and if that makes sense, it says, for the joy set before him, which means there's joy before us, the passage for peace-filled fruit of righteousness, if we're like, okay, I want some joy. I want peace. I want righteousness. I want to, how do I run my race that way? The answer the author gives is we become people of perseverance by receiving God's discipline. Is there like, a, is there like an option B, author of the Hebrews? Like I would, is there a different choice? Because I would go ahead and pick option B if there's an option B. And what's more, just as a reminder, the congregation that he's writing to the first time, right? This is a group of Jesus Jewish followers, Jewish Jesus followers, Jewish Jesus followers. <laughs> got to get those, got to get those correct. Uh, and they're living in the ancient Roman Empire, and they're trying to faithfully follow Jesus, but life has gotten hard. Some of them have been imprisoned for their faith. Some of them have lost property, homes, or businesses for their faith. Some of them are being publicly ridiculed for their faith. And so some of them are going, you know what? Maybe I'm just going to keep a little quiet about my faith. Maybe I'm just going to keep my faith a private faith. Maybe I'm going to worship God, but I'm not going to do it with any other Christians. I'm just going to hide this fact from the public eye. And the author says, no, 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 no. When these hardships, these specific hardships come, that is when you need to run with perseverance. But I get a little, I get, I get some questions in my brain because, okay, if the people are experiencing imprisonment, loss of property, serious hardship, and the author says that's God's discipline, oh, what do I make of that? What's more, oh, uh, so, so we're talking about discipline. Um, what's more, there's this line in the middle, and it says if you want to understand God's discipline, here's what you do. Remember, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. <laughs> to which I say, uh, have we? Uh, I had a great dad. I think my dad did a good job of disciplining me. But A, I know some people whose human fathers were completely absent, whether relationally completely absent or physically completely absent. They have no way to know what good fatherly discipline looks like. B, I've met people whose father did things that they call discipline that would better be called abuse. And that is not at all a good way for us to understand what God is doing in our life. So the author of Hebrews says, if you want to learn perseverance, which brings joy, you got to understand God disciplines you. And the author says, we've seen a father discipline us, which helps us understand how God disciplines us. But what I want to do is kind of flip that upside down and say, what does scripture teach us about how God disciplines his people? How does that teach us as earthly fathers or mothers, how to discipline in a good, proper way. But also, what does it teach us about 
whatever it is God is doing in our lives through this thing called discipline. So I want to look at a few things from the text that I think explains to us what a healthy understanding of discipline is, and specifically the kind of discipline that leads towards righteousness, peace, and joy. Here we go. First thing, the first line in this middle chunk of text, it said, in your struggle against sin. It didn't say, if it just so happens that maybe someday you struggle against sin. Or it didn't say, you know what, this probably won't happen to you, but, but maybe, you know, if you're unlucky. It said, when you struggle against sin. The assumption is that we live our lives in a struggle with some difficulty that we need help with. So the way I've understood this to be is, if you want to understand God's discipline rightly, the first thing you need to do is confess your need for help in the midst of struggle. Confession is always the starting line in the race of faith. And discipline works best when we've admitted that we need it. If we spend our whole lives trying to live as though we've got everything we need already on our own, the idea that God's disciplining us is never going to sit very well. Consider as an example, the idea of self-discipline. When you think of somebody who's self-disciplined, they are able to get themselves, if you've ever been self-disciplined, you're able to get yourself to do something that doesn't feel pleasant, but you know it's for your own good. So my first question is, when you think of God, your heavenly Father who knows you and loves you, do you think of him daily as a person who, whose help you need on a daily basis. That's necessary for a right understanding of discipline. Second, I want to look at the word. The word translated as discipline is paiduo. Everybody say paiduo. It's a verb. It's actually the verb form of the word that means child. And you can see this in the definitions. Education, training up, nurturing, to provide instruction for informed and responsible living, to assist in developing the ability to make right choices. When I was reading these definitions, something struck me. The word discipline, I'm not a big fan. I've already made this clear. I'm sort of like, ah, but I think the reason I struggle with the word discipline is because it calls to mind, for me, the activity of the one doing the discipline. And I think I've seen too much activity by humans called discipline that's in fact hurtful, harmful, or wrong. But when I see this word, it makes me realize the focus is not on the one doing the discipline. It's on the benefit received by the one being disciplined. So if confession is the starting line to rightly understanding God's work in our lives... I think the second thing is to realize that true discipline is always for the good of the one being disciplined. And this isn't us trying to be like, do some sort of weird mental gymnastics, being like, I'm sure it's good. It's God saying, if this is truly God disciplining us, it's definitely for our good. Just like anybody who's ever tried to get physically in shape and knows some of the pain and discomfort you have to go through to get stronger, 
So it is in our spiritual lives. Whenever God is disciplining us, it is for our own good. So what does that discipline look like? I spent some time looking throughout Scripture, reading some different people, and saying, what does Scripture show us about the ways that God goes about disciplining his people? If the author of Hebrews says all the hardship in your life is a form of discipline, what does that really mean? And I came up with three examples from Scripture of how God carries out his discipline. Here's the first one. Natural consequences. I was at the park the other day with my kids. Asa, my four-year-old, straight to the little creek in the park, and not in the creek, but on the rocks along the edge of the creek, and climbing back and forth across the slippery rocks that sort of made a bridge across the creek. Now I'm looking at Asa, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, he's definitely going to slip. When he falls, he is going to bash some part of his body. There will probably be a little blood, and then he will land in the water, and the water is very cold. This was a little while ago. Water is not warm yet. And then right afterwards, he's going to get up, he's going to climb out of the river, he's going to run, screaming and crying to me because he's wet and cold and hurt. And do you know what happened? Exactly that. That is exactly what happened. I like to think of it as though God created a cause and effect world. When we do things, when we make choices, when we take actions, those actions and choices have outcomes, consequences. There are causes and there are effects. To be clear, I did not do any of those things to Asa. I had no direct hand in what happened to him. Now, I didn't stop him from doing it, you know, but Asa's choice and Asa's consequences happened in a way that hopefully, I pray, he might learn from someday. I think one of the first ways God disciplines us is he has made a cause and effect world, a world with natural consequences, things that are not God's direct action on our lives, but that are opportunities for us to learn. In fact, the entire book of Proverbs is comprised of things like this. Here's one of the most classically known proverbs in popular culture. Pride comes before the fall. Turns out that's not in Proverbs. Here's what actually is. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall, but we can't handle a two-sentence proverb. We've got to smash it together into one. <laughs> now, does that, does that mean if God sees a proud person He's going to come down and destroy them, cut their legs out from under them? No. I think of it more like gravity, right? I can defy gravity by getting into an airplane. I can beat gravity every time I'm in an airplane. But if I get so conceited as to think, I've flown in an airplane a bunch of times, I bet I can just fly without an airplane. I'm going to fall. And so there are proud people who seem to be doing all right in this world, who seem to be living, but there's no escaping the fact that pride is a cause whose effect is always going to be, like gravity, to fall back to the earth. Discipline, what is it? Option one, I think the natural consequences world we live in is an example of God's disciplining us for our own good. 
Here's the second example. The effects of sin. Again, this is a category where it's not God directly acting in somebody's life, and yet God can work for our good even through sin. Here's an example. Um, A couple weeks ago, I decided to go back, actually no, on Monday. On Monday, I decided to go back to the gym. And by back to the gym, I mean I went back to the gym about five years ago, and then I went for a little while, and then I stopped going for a few years. So I go back to the gym, and it turns out I overdid it a little, which is exactly what I said the last time I went back to the gym. And not only did I overdo it, but, but my lower back has, um, has needed some extra attention in the last few days. And I thought to myself, when God created humans, did he look down and go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to design them just so that whenever they try to lift a weight heavier than they're capable of, their lower back tweaks and they have to walk around like this for at least three to five days. I don't think, in fact, God designed us that way as some sort of cruel trick. Rather, I think all physical pain and chronic illness is an effect of sin's presence in this world. I think both my somewhat minor lower back pain, but also severe chronic pain, and even more seriously, severe chronic illness, I don't think that's the work of God. I think that's the effects of sin at work in this world. However, I do believe that God wants to do his work even in the midst of sin's work in this world. Here's a couple scriptural examples. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he, he himself does not tempt anyone. Or the psalmist, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. If it's a temptation, it's not the work of God. If it's wickedness and evil, it's not the work of God. And yet, the Apostle Paul says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So, what's God's discipline? Maybe it's just the cause and effect, natural consequences world we live in. What's God's discipline? Maybe it's the work of evil. It's not God's work, it's the work of evil, but God works through it. Again, the Apostle Paul talks about this in his own life in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Maybe he had lower back pain. I don't know. I don't know. A messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The text says, the thorn in the flesh was the work of Satan. It's not God's work. And yet, 
God says, my grace is sufficient you. I'm present and at work in the midst of that work of evil. And the third type of discipline that we certainly see in Scripture is God's direct action. The plagues in Egypt in the Old Testament or the exile to Babylon. In the New Testament, there's these stories like Ananias and Sapphira. They they bring their gift and they give it to the apostles at church, but they lie about it. And it says they're struck dead for that lie. Or the early church, they're, they're celebrating communion. And communion at that time was a giant community meal. Some people were at communion literally starving with no food to eat except the bread they had. And other people at the same party were eating the most luxurious food and drinking the most expensive wine and getting drunk on it. And so Paul says, you're getting physically sick because of your sin. So we started this all with this question. How do I become a run with perseverance kind of person? How do I live a life that leads to the joy of Christ as a foundation in my life? Well, I do it by accepting God's discipline. What is that discipline? First, we acknowledge we need God's help. Second, it's something God does always for my good. Like what? Like learning wisdom from natural consequences. Like, like, seeing God at work even amidst the work of evil, or being open to God's direct action in my life. One of the challenges is when we confuse which one of those things is happening, or one of the bigger challenges is when somebody else sees what's going on in your life and says, you know what, I happen to know exactly what God's doing in your life through this thing. A right understanding of discipline is it's critical that we're able to discern the difference between these various ways that God might be working in our lives. I actually think, I actually think the word discipline, I think it misses the mark for what the author is trying to say. And instead, I think the concept of physical training might be a better direction. Just like any athlete who goes to a coach and says, coach, give me a workout. And the coach gives you a workout and you do the workout and your legs hurt and your lungs hurt and your back hurts, but you get done and you wake up feeling stronger the next morning. I think what the author of Hebrews is trying to say, that in the race of faith, God gives us a training plan. He gives us some workouts designed for our own good, for our own joy, for our own peace, and for our own righteousness. And in fact, that's exactly where they kind of land this big chunk of the book, is the author says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So what about you? What are the things that seem painful in your life at the time. And heck, they don't even seem painful. They are painful. What would it look like for you to see those as God's training plan for your own good in your life today? And I found myself thinking, but what would that really look like, Carl? How do I really, how do I really you know, what's, what's your move going to be? How do I really make that real in my life? And it turns out, 
the author ends chapter 12 by taking any confusion out of it and making it abundantly clear what this looks like. Here's the last few verses of chapter 12. Strive for peace with everyone. If that was the end right there, I'd be willing to say, okay, I've been given the hardest possible training plan that would probably be good for the rest of my life. Like, what's the training plan? Okay, workout number one, strive for peace with everyone. That's just number one? Oh, but it keeps going. And strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. What's God's training plan for you? Ask these questions. Is there anyone in my life right now that I'm not at peace with? God's given you a workout of making peace with hard-to-make-peace-with people that will produce a fruit of righteousness in your life. Is there any place in your life that you would say, I am not holy in this place. Sin has taken root. Addiction or brokenness or hurt in my life or upon others has taken root and I need to repent of my sinfulness. That's God's training plan in righteousness for you. Is there any place in your life where you're not giving God's grace to others? Where the lavish grace of God that's been poured upon you, you've thought to yourself, yeah, I'm just going to keep that to myself. That's God's workout for joy that he's given you in your life. Do you have any roots of bitterness that are getting deep into your heart and producing that toxin that only and always infects every part of life when bitterness takes over? Do you have any sexual immorality or godlessness? Is there anywhere in your life where you're turning, running, rejecting the God who loves you? What he's saying to you is not that he's done those things, not that that's all his activity. Some of it might be, some of it might not be, but I can guarantee that through all of it, God is training you, strengthening you, giving you his endurance so that you might find the joy, the joy of Christ, the peace that surpasses all understanding. What it ultimately means is whether or not it's God's direct activity or God's presence in the midst of the work of evil, Your life, all of it, every part of it, is God's training plan for you. I wrote this last part of the sermon, and I thought to myself, where have people seen this? So I pulled out my phone, and I just started randomly texting people in the congregation that came to mind. And here's what I said. I said, When in your life was a season of great spiritual growth? What was one of the seasons of the greatest spiritual growth you've ever had? A bunch of people got back to me, maybe 15, 20 people got back to me, some 
people who have been doing this for a long time, some people who are pretty young in their faith, um, some people in this church community, some people outside the church community, got a bunch of answers, and it was awesome hearing these short little stories about God at work. And there's two big categories that I see in those answers. A bunch of people said, I grew a lot in my faith in a time of great support and encouragement. When I just had this amazing Bible study I was part of, when I I had just some really awesome friends and our friendship was just life-giving, when when I was part of that college ministry or when I went to camp, these these experiences were, were just... The people of God and the presence of God and the word of God was so full and rich and life-giving. That was a great time of spiritual growth. Almost every single person also said the greatest spiritual growth happened in some of the greatest hardships of my life. When a father passed away, when somebody was still a teenager, losing an adult child, fearing that your own baby would die in its infancy, when you made some bad financial decisions and you were just up against the wall and there were lawsuits and pressure, when you, made, when you moved your family across the country and you thought, oh, this is going to work out, and then everything falls apart and you can't pay the bills. And people kept saying, those horrendously difficult times were times of the greatest growth they've ever known. What about you? How is God training you for his righteousness today as well? Would you pray with me? God, we've acknowledged as we do often, there's, there's weights and hardships. There's burdens and brokenness in and around every one of our lives. But here's my prayer. Help us to see, God, no matter what we're facing. Help us to see in the midst of the greatest joys of life, the celebrations, the the high points, as well as help us to see in the greatest challenges of life, the hurts, hardships, and struggles. Help us to see, and not just see, but to know in the deepest part of our being that, God, your grace is sufficient. And that with your grace and your promised presence, as we're about to sing, we have nothing to fear and everything to gain by living our lives with you and for you. And everybody said, Amen.